Hi, and welcome to episode two of the Haskell Cast. My co-host is Chris Forno. Hello. I'm Rain Hendricks, and our special guest today is Don Stewart. Hi, guys. So, Don, let's talk a bit about uh, your history with Haskell. I know you've worked on uh, Hackage and the Haskell platform, and you, you co-wrote a book. Yeah, I guess I started using Haskell in 99. Um, I, in Australia, in, at, uh, there were several universities at the time that were doing the Comp 1A, the very first course of programming for kids out of high school was in Haskell. And um, this it was in a, the computer science and engineering department, so it's a hybrid engineering, electrical engineering and CS um, school. And so it was basically Haskell for the first half of first year and then straight into C and um, then onto operating systems and stuff like that in second year. So it was kind of this weird hybrid of um, super high-level language, semantics, types, and theory combined with the low-level kernel hackers and um, a lot of C programming. So that was kind of the background. I started doing Haskell there. And I got um, I did my honors degree on um, looking at one of the earlier attempts to translate Haskell to JVM. So we were targeting JVM. And then I got really interested in hot swapping and ended up doing a PhD on um, how to do typed, type-safe dynamic code loading. So being able to pull functions into a Haskell system, replace them on the fly, um, and you see a lot of that in LambdaBot, which is kind of the, the right. famous uh, tool running in the Haskell channel. That was all just built around a little skeleton to do hot swapping, where you could, people would write code, they'd send it to me, and I'd load it into the LambdaBot as it was running along, and we'd have to make sure there were no type errors. So that was sort of in the early 2000s. And um, somewhere along there, I got, I got interested in fusion and performance work, and then um, ultimately ended up getting hired to go and work at Gawa after I was finishing up my PhD and uh, worked there for four years. And then the last three years, I've been working in finance at Standard Chartered doing Haskell for um, trading uh, systems, so writing pricing systems in Haskell. Do you have any, any quick takeaways for if you're writing something quickly and you want performance, what are your go-tos? Do you, do you have tools or techniques that, you're, that you – or th- just things you know to avoid? Yeah, I guess you see a lot of this on my Stack Overflow. I just I respond to there's almost a canned answer of how to respond to things. You want to uh, stick to the fast primitive types, so things like unboxed arrays and byte strings for for bulk I/O mm-hmm. text. If you're doing strings, um, these are you know, carefully optimized libraries um, and things like things vector. Like, yeah, vector is a perfect example. It's a de- definitely, and it comes with a fusion framework as well, so you yeah. can write nice high level compositional stuff. Um, so you get those core data types right. If you're writing your own data types, make sure you're, you've got strict atomic types like int and double. And that's one that people often get caught out on. They use uh, like tuples of doubles. So you have a, a lazy tuple containing a lazy double. Mm-hmm. And then the compiler has to work harder to optimize that. Mostly, though, you should just have structs with ADTs with um, a strict. Every time you see a bool, an int, a double, it should be strict. Right. Um, vectors for bulk stuff and then pay attention to if you've got recursion pay attention to any recursive arguments that should be strict so mostly i write in a kind of a strict style for the simple atomic types and then rely on laziness with containers and um, bag structures where you've got some kind of spine that should be right spine strictness is not always a great is not always a great plan for laziness i actually i read a, a tweet of yours recently where you're talking about how lazy laziness composes better for performance in some cases could you expand on that a little bit yeah this is something we've seen on the um so we have this enormous code base it's 1.3 million lines of haskell now about about a million lines of c and c plus plus we've got a lot of people working on it and um they have better or worse haskell skills and sure that some of them are, are true experts there's a lot of guys who just have some financial engineering background um not that many with computer science backgrounds. So they're writing Haskell. They don't necessarily know how to um, write. They don't understand the semantics that well in general for programming. They're not great programmers necessarily. And so we have interesting performance problems when we have a strict model that we then build some complicated structure out of, which in turn is strict. Um, 
And the functions compose nicely because they're pure functions, but performance doesn't compose. So if you do, instead of uh, like a lazy list in Haskell, if you have a pipeline of these, each consuming one element at a time, if you're in a strict setting, you're allocating right. the entire structure every time you have a compositional And you, you might be forcing GHC to evaluate more things than you actually need to evaluate. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so we've we found as the as the code gets bigger and the you have these nested structures, you know, one com- big component is calling another component deep down inside it. And it's when it's in a strict way, you you get these sort of performance leaks where mm-hmm. you start getting n squared or, or worse time right. um, blowouts just because you're evaluating too much right. you, too far down. GHC needs to determine the the structure of the entire or the shape of the entire structure. Before it can do yeah. anything, and sometimes yeah. the, those structures can be large. And even if to just to pull out a, a small value, right. so you might be computing some big model just to find some standard deviation down inside it. So, um, so strictness in in values and in algebraic data types where where the structures are, are, are well defined but, on the leaves, yeah, right, on the leaves of the structure. Right. But but laziness on the spines as yeah. a general rule. And as you get the big systems, we're just pulling in huge globs of data. Laziness does seem to help there in in quickly getting something working um, without worrying too much about the performance. So we find that we we write in a mostly strict style, and then to make stuff faster or mm-hmm. use less memory, we make it lazier. Okay, so you you default to to putting a lot of bangs everywhere. <laughs> yeah, and using strict data types. <laughs> and using yeah. do you so you know foldl versus strict foldl. Yeah, I mean, certainly Foldel is a, a perfect example. There's almost no good use of Foldel, lazy Foldel. Mm-hmm. Um, especially for this, so sim, it, this is a lot, we do a lot of data processing. So it's sucking in data, running some scan fold map over it, and maybe a pipeline of these, accumulating some results. So you, I, you would write these as loops um, in an imperative language, a series of loops, we'd like to write them just as a small pipeline and have the whole thing collapse down to the loop that we want. Right. And uh, and that means using you know strict accumulators um, and things like that. Yeah. So the the main difference between the two is that the lazy version, the accumulator will be basically just a chain of of thunks. Yeah. And the and yeah. the strict version will the accumulator gets evaluated as you go. Yeah, that's right. So you're just keeping if it's a it's a number that you're calculating a little double that's being right. added to, you just keep it as a double. Yeah, you can just store 6. You don't need to store 1 plus yeah. 1 plus 1 plus 1. Yeah, and that's really it's wrong to do it in a lazy way. So, I think the the lesson is really it's it's not about should I always program in a strict style mm-hmm. or always lazily. This is just wrong. It's too simple. Mm-hmm. Um it's it's more nuanced here. You have to look at Strictness for certain classes of problems, um, big bag nested graphy structures often lazy, especially if you're only querying small parts of it. Right. And um, and and to be a really well-rounded programmer, you have to be able to see when a problem would be better off if particular arguments were strict or particular functions were strict, or or if it's something should be lazy. And is there is there a good way for a Haskell developer to to build an intuition for that aside from just throwing a lot of, of lazy and strict variations at the problem? It's tricky. I think practice. I think practice makes a lot of sense. Um, you don't, if you're only ever programming in a strict language, you don't really ever think to practice. What would it be like if this was a lazy list? Yeah, I, People, I, I, still, I, still, like yield and, I still make mistakes based on, on the non-strictness of Haskell and mental mistakes in terms of how something will be evaluated. So, Yeah, yeah, that's right. So... Yeah, it's, I think practice is clear. There's these days we have a lot of good folklore, and you know it's written down in many cases. Mm-hmm. Johan Tibble's been very good at this, at um, sort of the stuff that I was saying earlier about leaves should be strict, right. spines often should be lazy. Um, don't be afraid. We have we have a huge wealth of strict data types now, which yeah. we didn't have 15 years ago. So well, all the basic hardware accelerated data structures exist. And at least for um, me now, a lot of times it just comes down to well, spit out core and then go digging. Yeah, yeah, and I mean that's. I think it's an advanced technique. It was something that only a few people were doing in like two thousand five, six. Mm-hmm. But that it really is the best way to yeah, find I mean, out what it's the compiler sort of the, is doing. Yeah, it's sort of the equivalent of a spitting out assembly. Yeah, sometimes yeah. you want it's, to see I mean, what it's that loop is level doing. Than assembly. Right. Yeah. It's, of it's course, still high level. <laughs> analogous in terms of as a debugging means of last resort. 
And it's it's something somewhat unique to to GHC, I think, because it's a it's compilation via transformation. So you're taking source, you're rewriting and rewriting it in order to yeah. optimize it. And one um, of the beautiful things is that what you get as the the assembly for for GHC is this very high level pure functional language, a very simple yeah. high level pure functional language. Yeah, you can take it out and run it yourself. Write an interpreter for core, not too hard at all. Um, we used to do do that for um, a computer science course I taught at UNSW. Um, we wrote a, a little compiler for the core language, and the students would write the parser, and then they would write the interpreter, and then they'd write a compiler. Um, we used to quick, quick check the assignments. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it's a small language, and you, you, you're optimizing it based on the cost semantics. And if you have an understanding of that, then most performance problems become fairly easy to answer. Mm-hmm. If occasionally the core is not enough and there's actually a bug in the code generator or sometimes the runtime is, is running into trouble. So you, you start by reasoning about the code at the Haskell level based on the data types. If that doesn't make sense, check what the compiler is doing, look at the core. Um, and then if you're really, really concerned about performance, then look at the assembly that you're getting, look at the assembly through LLVM. And then if you're, if you're kind of at the guru level, go and think about what the runtime system could be doing, think about the runtime system model. Mm-hmm. But the better the person's ability is to work, reason at these different levels, the more successful they'll be at writing super high-performance, high-level code. So, Don, this is reminding me uh, that you co-authored Real World Haskell. And it, I think people were very excited that it addresses some of these real-world issues that come up. But it also leaves a lot to be desired, especially with these sort of advanced optimizations. Are you planning or know of somebody who's planning to go more into detail with that? Or do you have some resources that you could point out to people who really want to understand these performance issues? Yeah, Real World Haskell, um, Brian, John, and I really wanted to put down the, f- the first layer of the day-to-day practice of writing Haskell that was occurring around the time that we were writing it. But, you know, people were starting to build companies around the platform of Haskell, GHC in particular, and the libraries that existed at the time. And there was, and people were being very successful at it, but there was this big gap between what the practitioners were doing and what what sort of the general population could pick up. And so Real World Haskell was to um, capture everything that we were doing at the time. So it has, it has kind of a couple of chapters on parallelism, on Sparks, on um, software transactional memory. And it has one chapter on performance and profiling. And since that time, we've got a whole bunch of new tools. We've got things like ThreadScope. We've got, um, and Simon Marlowe has captured a lot of this in his book um, from O'Reilly as well on parallel programming in Haskell. That sort of captured a lot of the performance stuff in the multi-core setting. Um, I, I think it's tricky to write a dedicated book just on performance profiling and pro- perform, writing high-performance Haskell. I can I can imagine one that's very numerics-based, so looking at um, you know financial models or something like that, something that's kind of like uh, numerical recipes in Haskell. Mm-hmm. Um, but I th- at the moment, I you know I don't think anyone's planning on writing something that specific. Yeah. I think the place to go is read read Stack Overflow problems, um, read anything Johan Tibble writes on data structures, read the real world Haskell chapters. Um, keep an eye on what um, Ed Yang is coming up with. He's working a lot on cost semantics and understanding the runtime in a, in a formal way so that you can write tools about what the runtime system is doing. Um, that's kind of the, the, the edge now of, of where the interesting stuff is happening as well as the LLVM backend to GHC, which has been a huge step forward. One thing that was pretty helpful for me has been going through the source of Roman's vector library and trying to understand the decisions as he made them. You know, why is this inlined? Why is this strict? He obviously knows more about the performance of Haskell, you know, in a single core environment or, you know, single threaded environment than, than I would, you know, say almost anyone, certainly way more than I do. So trying to figure out what his decision. Roman and I worked together at, uh, in, in Sydney and he would sit in his office and just be staring at pages and pages of core. And then, (laughs) Trying to understand how why why was this emitted from the compiler right. why why didn't a function fuse yeah and, it, and then, it, it looks a lot like wizardry from the outside but there's you know there's a there is a very strong reasoned approach behind yeah it. it's it's understanding how the inliner works how the simplifications work the various optimizations that GHC applies and then you write code to target those optimizations um, 
And the vector in particular program treats the library as a whole program compiler. So it's expecting to see all your source, pull in the vector library, and then start collapsing away the data structures yeah. and the, the different loops. One thing that I've um, realized from using vector is that I'm not smarter than the library is. <laughs> and that if I try to write really, really smart code around vector, vector will be slower. Yeah. But yeah. if I just write simple composable functions that vector can take advantage of, it often is way smarter than me in terms of being able to fuse things. Yeah, it's I can I mean I can write fast stuff on a small scale, mm -hmm. but it just doesn't compose. So if you're trying to write larger systems, it, the compiler is a lot better at it. Yeah, you have to you have to change languages. You have to start programming in core, and and it, quickly you sort of get lost in the forest. Yeah. Um, well, you you have there's that extra level of indirection where you're trying to program to core, but you have to do it in the in the Haskell language. So yeah, you, you have this, right. you know, this feedback loop of write some Haskell, print out some core, figure out why it didn't do what you wanted, try another thing in Haskell. Yeah. And I think that's actually a healthy way to learn the language by typing something and seeing exactly the output. So unlike, say, Python, we, have, we can see what the runtime yeah. is doing and we can see what the language is doing. So it's not, it's not an opaque black box where you've dumped stuff in. You can see exactly the layers as they're translated down. You can look at the assembly. You know what the runtime's going to do. Um, things like the garbage collector, they can still be hard to reason about, but the, your, you, the core of your, your function bodies are fully under your control. They're not anything that you can't, that you, you have no insight into. So you, you talked briefly about using QuickCheck in an academic setting for, for testing student submissions. I'm really interested in, in testing in general in Haskell, especially in large products and how it scales out. Because I, for me, coming from uh, mostly an object-oriented background where, where testing is really the only good way to reason about your system, I find in Haskell that we have other tools in the type system and in equational reasoning and things like that that make testing less important. But I wonder, yeah. I wonder how you find it. Where do you use testing in your, in your professional work? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I have been a big advocate for testing, heavy, rigorous testing, um, since since Xmonad. So Xmonad mm -hmm. was one where we, we we started getting the code coverage tools that were being produced. Um, Andy Gill was working on this at Galva to do code coverage. And so you can instrument your Haskell program, run the tests, and get a report showing exactly what was executed by the test. And so you can quickly uh, improve the, the coverage of your testing. Um, but the easiest way to do that is to start writing these high-level properties and using QuickCheck to just right. generate massive quantities of testing for you. Um, so that's and that's what we do for at Chart, for example. We have a continuous integration system. People are submitting Haskell functions that go into the system continuously, and massive amounts of testing gets done. Do you run. use a lot of HUnit or unit-style testing? We do. It's a kind of a hybrid thing. So the Writing really good quick check properties seems to be something it's for programmers. Yeah. Um, you know, in an environment where we've got yeah. um, domain experts who they they will come up with a few cases, and then we'll typically the programmers will come back and challenge them on saying, okay, well, what about in general? How does this work in general? Mm -hmm. And the best way to lock that down to lock down the actual properties of the function is with quick check. I think writing writing property or, or small check one of the ones property based tests. Right. Write the property-based test. That becomes the specification. Put that, bake that into the comment with the code, so you can see, oh yeah, this is what this is expected to do in all the corner cases. Mm -hmm. But throw in throw in unit tests, throw in unit tests for performance regressions. I think a mixture of unit tests, a unit tests and quick check mm -hmm. with code coverage, along with using types extensively to really. Get, you want to get the semantics right in the types and then the quick check and unit tests to ensure that other parts mm -hmm. of the system don't screw up. I've been using uh, HSpec for that, which coming from my language background, the BDD style, the, the BDD language of, of writing HSpec is, is nice for me. And I like how it, it makes it really easy to incorporate both uh, HUnit and, and quick check. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think there's interesting stuff happening as well with um, the formal methods guys, like Liquid Haskell integrating mm -hmm. uh, stuff that you can't express. You, there, are, there are properties I can write in QuickCheck that I would actually like to write as types. Right. And so. And I would consider, you know, Agda proofs as a form of testing. Yeah. Well, I mean, as a, they're, they're a rigorous type. If I've got a type, then I've done a proof, right. and all the testing I've got is only an approximation for for proving right. the properties of the code. So. 
we've, we've got a much richer ecosystem now. It's not just you know, t- 2002 when you had, you had QuickCheck, when right. you had HUnit, and HUnit a little, was used by a few people. Um, now we've got code coverage, we've got SMT solvers, we've got integrated language tools. A lot of people with Agda experience now who, who really push the type system. And the type system itself has come on a long way. So yeah, I would consider I think, a proof to be slightly stronger than a test. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Could you give us an idea of the scope and, and what the deployment process actually looks like for a large Haskell system? Yeah, so we've got, we're running out of Git. It's all Git-based. We've got people in four or five um, locations in different time zones, and they're, they're working on this multi-million line code base. So how do you keep that thing sane? Well, the first thing is it's, it's Haskell, so we're using types. So you can't just break the system by committing code that's not type safe. It has to be type correct to yep. get in. Um, the code's pure, so you can't, you know, some new guy on the team working in a location very far away can't uh, mess up some other part of the system by messing with mutable state. So that's already minimized a lot of the complexity in the system. People are really working in isolated components. The type system's enforcing that because we're controlling all the side effects. And so, well, okay, if we've got type correct code, it's pure, so there's no side effects to scramble things up. That's a good start on getting code integrated safely. Then all the testing comes in. So people are pushing the code we're running. People tend to work on branches. When they're done each day, they push in a, a batch of patches. They get type, They get integrated with the rest of the code base and type checked. We run a whole bunch of warnings, compiler tools over it to check for um, typical errors, name shadowing and missing type signatures and stuff like that. That's usually a sign of bad code. And then the testing begins. We run quick automated tests that will catch the obvious stuff. And then once a day we run the heavy regression tests. We're looking for numerical changes in models and things that could have gone wrong without having been caught after all these other layers. So have you banned the use of certain functions, like unsafe functions, or do you just watch and monitor their usage? No, they're banned. They're banned. So there's no unsafe before my own. I mean, it's we ha- it's, it's a complex environment, so there's l- almost every kind of idiom is going on. But basically, if things are proven to be unsafe, if they're shown to be unsafe, we tend to lock them out of the code base. So unsafe performing mode, there's none of that. Um, occasionally, it can creep back in there. I mean, it's not completely banned just for pragmatic reasons. There is occasional uses that are useful. But, um, yeah, we, we try and ban bad behaviors. We use um, Neil's, Neil Mitchell's HLint. Uh, to give automated uh, style guides to people as well. So if you're, a, you're maybe you're a Java programmer who's working in finance and you've got this job writing Haskell, how do you w- work out if what you're writing is sensible? Um, HLint helps a lot with that. So it's a, a mechanized tool for helping improve the style of the code. Have you customized that uh, based on your own style rules or do you just use it out of the box? No, we have we have a custom version of that. We have a custom version of Haddock as well. So it's kind of an, an integrated deployment environment where we, you're pushing the code, you're getting a report on the quality. You're getting a lint, on, you're getting docs generated. Yeah, yeah, that kind of stuff. And a little Google that's running internally. So anyone can go and look up a function. If they see a function in a spreadsheet, they can go and look it up. They can see the type. They can see properties that it might satisfy. Have, you, tie, to. have you tied that into your editors yet? Yeah, we have an IDE yeah. that we wrote in-house. <laughs> so uh, we have an in-house IDE for all this. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't use the IDE. That's mm-hmm. really for that's for the guys. Most of the most of the, the core programmers are just working in Emacs or Vim. Mm-hmm. Some of them use the in-house IDE in order to improve it. So, by, but by the way, which up. which is your editor of choice? I'm I'm a Vim guy. Yes. I, wrote, I mean, I wrote I wrote, yes. uh, I wrote back in the day. Suck I wrote it, Chris. Ye. <laughs> If I, people probably don't remember the Yi project anymore, but it was a uh, oh, it was a text oh, editor. I remember. <laughs> yeah, the very first version, Yi yeah. zero point one, was uh, VI. It was a classic VI clone. Mm-hmm. Had about ninety percent of BSD VI, and um, and then then I handed maintainership to Jean Philippe Bernardi at Chalmers, and he rewrote it as Emacs. <laughs> so now 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 it's basically an Emacs clone. Screw you, Don. <laughs> You know, I've I've been meaning to make some videos on deconstructing the source for you. I'm hesitant to mention it, lest I be held to it. But uh, it's it's an interesting piece of software for, for sure. 
Yeah, it's it's I mean it's a generic editor that you plug in you plug in lexical analyzers that emulate your favorite editor. So we've always had pretty good VI and Emacs bindings. And there's mm-hmm. a paper, there's a chapter on it in my in my thesis on um, on the uh, we use dynamic lexical combinators. So these are um, kind of like Parsec but for lexes. And mm-hmm. so you can write, um, you can have rebindable syntax as you do in Emacs, where you can define new functions on the fly that modify how things are parsed as you type in new commands. And VI lets you do that as well. So we used a, um, we used kind of a, a an early, I think it's one of the few uses of lexa combinators, um, self-modifying lexa combinators in order to let you write your own editor. Interesting. So coming back to the uh, the standard charted and large scale Haskell stuff, how, how is the code broken up? I mean, do you have a number of different uh, programs that run different places, uh, libraries? What does it look like when uh, code gets to that size in Haskell? It's I mean, it's component. It's they're structured around major components. So um, at its at its heart, there's a bunch of financial models. And these are for different asset classes. And so that's kind of the natural deconstruction. Um, and there are many, many of these financial libraries out there. And they, they have a similar structure. So that's the kind of the core. But then you have a bunch of services. So we've got different database backends. Um, we've got different web sources accessing data in different ways, publishing in different ways, um, rendering data, plotting data, analyzing data. And so you start to end up with something that looks a bit like um, the Haskell platform. Right, it's it's a set of core data types. It's a set of core I/O, and then libraries for inter- interfacing with with different storage systems. Libraries for doing networking, and then a whole bunch of domain-specific stuff to do with finance. And so you've got it looks a bit like a collection of packages, um, different teams maintaining different parts, with with applications sprinkled through them. And these are desktop and web apps that are built in into this ecosystem. So would you so say? Some, sorry, go ahead. Uh, I really think the structure of the Haskell platform is kind of a way to look at how you start assembling big granular systems. It's it's packages decomposed into modules, keep them isolated, have strong types between them, avoid the side effects, and such. These code bases just accrue code without losing sanity. Would it be correct to say that the code is structured around library development, where applications are just the endpoints? We do try and do that. We try, we try and make it so you can write a page full of code, and that's the app, and everything else is the is a library. Um, and that's something that's something I've been doing for for a long time. Xmonad like that, years like that. You write it as a library, put put the library up on Hackage, and then the GUI in whatever GUI You're, you want right. is just a thin thing. Right. Whatever line. whatever application you have is just a thin wrapper around yeah. the library that provides the I/O or the user interaction. And it lets us do it lets us do command line testing. It lets us do GUI desktop GUI versions of stuff and web based JavaScript with client server side stuff, all running exactly the same code underneath. That's really interesting for me, especially that you're able to do that at at such a large scale. Because from my own um, professional experience, when when time to market is super critical in, in the startup world and things like that, we people tend to focus on on the application. And write a big application that does what you want, and then maybe later, if if there's free time, they'll break out and extract libraries or or packages from that. But that never really seems to happen in any in any structured way. And so what you end up getting is, you know, a stable of you know twenty different horses that are all doing their own thing, but then you can't share anything between them. Yeah, we definitely started off a bit like that. People, as you have, we had a new team that was getting to know each other. Um, you don't necessarily know what the other teams are up to, so you work in isolation, mm-hmm. even though we're all committing into this huge repository. And then over time, you start to learn and recognize when things are going to be generally useful and you know where to put them. And now we try and train the new developers that join the teams. Okay, you know, you're writing, oh, this is a generally useful data type. It goes into the data.star and you can you can name it, give it a name, give it some tests, and then other people will use it. The general rule that we have is if you use something twice, move it out of any application-specific code and put mm-hmm. it somewhere in in the data or the system. In, in order for that to work, you need some sort of package management system, You know, your own internal um, 
package or whatnot, you need something where you can actually ship that that those libraries around and, and publish to them easily. Do you guys use your own version of package? We don't do. We do. We're a single monolithic. Uh, repository. Oh, okay. And what we do have, we have our own build system though to run this whole thing. So Shake, the um, Shake library, which Neil wrote, in um, is is an amazing Haskell build system for building very large repositories. It lets you combine. It's very independent of languages, mm-hmm. but it gets dependencies right and it gets parallelism right. So you've so got a build, big million-line Git repository. Yeah, yeah, with tons of Haskell. So it's like building a big chunk of package every day. And relying on Cabal to get mm-hmm. minimum rebuilds, so we're using Shake to get the minimum rebuilds. So right. if I only change my little area, that's the only thing that gets yeah, rebuilt. It does basically cache and validation rules yeah. on, on the yeah. on the dependency graph kind of thing. Yep. Yeah. Don, what do you do when it comes to safety? When uh, you step out of Haskell, you mentioned some JavaScript and and possibly some other web uh, applications or desktop applications. Is that something that you just aren't concerned with? It's a small amount of code, or do you have a solution that makes JavaScript safer that you're working with? Uh, we use a lot of DSLs, so we generate JavaScript. We don't, I don't think we ever write JavaScript by hand, <laughs> so we always generate it. Occasionally, sometimes, like some, if you're prototyping something, you might write a lot of, little bit of client-side stuff, but in general, we generate it. Um, and we take the approach of using DSLs whenever you're interfacing with something that's unsafe. So FFI bindings, marshalling data between different systems, talking to Excel, things like that. We're going to use code generation to automate all the boilerplate. Um, you still have this problem, though. You have to deal with an untyped world. You have to talk JSON to some services. You have to pull data out of databases that's going to have more or less columns based on a query. So it's all dependently typed if you want to get the typewriter. Um, or else it's it's unstructured and you have to marshal it into something. So and that's a challenge. You you have to get you have to get good at marshaling data. You have to be good at parsing. Have lots of parsing tools ready, ways to validate data. Um, I think it it helps a lot having algebraic data types so you know what you're marshaling into, and that def- that's kind of a clear line between the messy unstructured world, mm-hmm. and then the typed world. So get your data types right. Get the data in and out of that data type on the edges. So when you're when you're writing out your JSON or rendering binary stuff that's going on the wire, you do that at the last possible moment from the algebraic data type, and then you insulate yourself inside the Haskell world by having only stuff that operates from that data type onwards. And do you try to uh, capture that with with exceptions at the edges of of that interface in terms of when you're marshalling something, do you want to throw an exception as quickly as possible if you get something you don't expect? Yeah, this has been a this has been an interesting discussion that we've had in the team. We have we have a bunch of programmers who are working on low level stuff, not necessarily in Haskell, and they very much they want to throw exceptions, and we want them to write total functions. We don't want partial functions, um, but you can't you can't handle all these cases. So you want to maybe or an either and not, you know, throw an yeah. exception or some, yeah. some, you want an exception type that you can operate over. Yeah. Yeah. So we, it, what happens is that we end up writing, um, safety layers that lift exceptions into, into either's or maybes mm-hmm. and then operate on those things. But at the edges, yes, there'll be exceptions. Yeah. And in general, when you're, handling exceptions through a system how how do they propagate do you use an exception class pass those around as values and then aggregate them elsewhere do you use a lot of either's or maybes mostly we are yeah there's a, a couple of people who prefer the the exception t kind of thing mm-hmm. i think the the if i had to say the main idiom would be to to grab the exception as early as possible and convert it into an explicit data type so you start working the either monad or the maybe monad and run a, a series of these things. If you've got a bunch of operations, it could fail. And then, yeah, put it into the type, turn it into a pure value, and operate from there. Mm-hmm. That def- definitely seems to be the way. Rather than letting an exception bubble up and right. you know throw it, throw away your stack. Yeah, and it, it seems like you lose a lot of ability to reason about your program when an exception can happen anywhere. Yeah, I think total functions are the key. If you have partial functions in your code, it is going to bite you eventually. Mm-hmm. Pretty much every time I see a partial function, I have said, 
this is going to be a problem later, and then they turn yeah. out to be a problem later. Is that something so, your lint catches, partial functions, and do you warn people strictly about that or sternly? It, it's it's hard to show that uh, <laughs> that all the code is turtle. So mm-hmm. Neil has a catch tool that we don't we don't use it. We have some. We don't have a totality checker. Mm-hmm. No, but and it would be nice to have one in Haskell. Um, some of the, the SMT solvers can. Well, can there, there, there are some places where it can be done trivial. I realize it's it's not an easy problem for all cases. Yeah, yeah. Um, we do warn all the basic stuff. We warn about case case analysis where you're leaving avoiding right. cases, um, things like that. And then we have other rules for similar sort of common problems that people will screw up. But I, I still would like a totality checker. It's something we did for Xmonad. We did, we did, we proved totality on the on the core of Xmonad mm-hmm. um, using catch, and then later Wilder Swister came along and redid it in Agda and showed the same properties held. And the, the quick checks also were were proofs. He did proofs of the quick check, and at the time it did catch a couple of issues. They were, they were complicated things. They were like you know negative integers that I would probably not occur in practice, but very difficult property to state as a quick check test. Mm-hmm. And um, but you know the, the totality checker doesn't let you lie, right? And then you, and then you have to actually think about these very obscure corner cases. You talked earlier about finding sort of the core abstraction for uh, a domain, and is that where you focus your the the heavy weapons, the the proof systems and things like that in terms of, do you want to prove that that core is correct and then be less strict about evaluating the the code that that uses it? Yeah, I think it's about, it's, it's a work out your semantics. So come up with the, the axioms that define the system you're working on. So it's a, I think a lot of the Haskell world works this way. You have Mm -hmm. an axiomatic process. You come, you're writing a new library. You write an introductory form to create objects in this in this system. Treat it like an algebra. Right. Ways to introduce things, ways to transform them, and ways to eliminate them. And that's how almost all libraries proceed. And you have whether, more or whether less, that's an explicit process or not. Yeah, yeah. And we try and we try and make it explicit. So you you write a little habit comment saying, here's all the introductory forms. You have a way to introduce a null value or a singleton value, mm-hmm. ways to compose them and combine them and the ways to eliminate them and turn data into other systems. And it, just so many systems end up being written that way. And you get those core, the, you get the axioms, right? Then you start showing high-level properties, the, the ways things can compose, associate, commute. You get your quick check properties that specify all these interesting behaviors. And then you just let it loose and you know that well, there's, the library's correct, but also there's no way to write code using this right. library that is not going to that's going to break these invariants. At that point, as long as you have uh, well-defined types, and then you write code that type checks, you get a, a pretty good um, amount of. You're 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 pretty confident that if you can write something that type checks against that system, it, it'll probably at least not be broken. Yeah, it may not yeah. do anything it's, interesting. The types, the types fully well. They don't fully specify the behavior, but right. the at least you've shown that the ways to compose the programs always mm-hmm. yield sound programs. Right. Um, and it minimizes complexity. It lets you scale up to huge systems. Um, and it's, I guess, it's not really a software engineering. If you go and do a software engineering course, they don't teach this kind of axiomatic approach. It's, it's a form of encapsulation, isn't it? If you it's, it, if you encapsulate yeah. the behavior of the system with types, then you're operating against types, and you don't have to dig into that system to understand how it works. You just write something that type checks. Yeah, yeah. I never want to see functions where there's a list of corner cases in the comments saying, oh, yeah, by, by the way, if you pass a null argument, it does this unusual thing. Or if you pass a single thing and the last character is an X, then it does this other strange thing. I hate right. seeing that in, in, in code bases. You never want to see these corner cases. It should be as simple and as simple as semantics as possible. From a, from a business standpoint, this sounds like uh, a lot of upfront work and a tough case to make for some abstract sort of benefits that you get from all this purity and so on. Can you explain or give some concrete examples of how this has really paid off, uh, for example, at Standard Chartered? Yeah, I don't know if there's a lot of upfront work. You just you have to have people that know how to write code, so they have to be familiar with the language, no matter what language you're using. Um, but the benefit is clear at scale. So when you have... We've, the team's been running for about six years now. We've had maybe 100 developers come through, and they're not all Haskell programmers. So people come through with different experience levels. They work on something for six months, and they go away. How do you make sure the whole system keeps running? 
you have to minimize complexity in the system. So you start finding ways to prevent components interacting with each other, ways to specify their behaviors and then forget about them. And that means what are the cheapest ways to do that? Well, types are, are really good. Minimizing side effects are really good. And it's even better if your compiler just checks these things for you. Um, it's more work if you have to write tests to do them. I just, I just can't imagine how to write these enormous systems without them falling under, collapsing under their own weight, or else you just spend all your time writing test cases to, to emulate the types. Because the basic, the basic problems with using huge systems are you have a, a developer who doesn't understand the system has been told to implement something, and they look at the documentation, they try and work out what, how to call the various functions they need to call, they try and integrate it. So the more help you can do to help that guy, the less chance you've got, your code is going to fall apart over time. And, and types and pure interfaces are a very good way of getting people up and running quickly. They can integrate code. Once it compiles, they haven't broken anything. They're certainly not messing around in your, with the internals of your system using sneaky back channels. And then um, they're off and running. And it, it takes a little while for people to learn how to read type signatures. It takes a little while to learn how to think in terms of maps and folds filters and scans rather than in loops on local variables um, or you know that your first solution to any data problem is to create some mutable state and start updating it using control flow but once you once you're at this scale you have no other choice you just can't let people um, mess with global state mess with yeah. impure interfaces and if they want to do something mutable that will be captured inside the monad and it'll be it, captured. It'll you be know local that it and isolated. Leak. And yeah. it, it seems like that that builds a lot of confidence, especially for for new developers. When you can tell them, do what you whatever you want, you won't break anything. The yeah. worst thing that yeah, can happen you, is that your code won't work. Yeah, as we just the, the challenge for the new guys is to get the code into that first build and to have it get through the type checker, get through the warnings, get through the test system. Uh, once they've made it that far, well, that's great. I can go home and I sleep at night and I know mm -hmm. that things aren't going to all have gone to hell. <laughs> um, you know, there's still a lot of DevOps stuff, so databases can go down and undersea cables can get cut. But people won't screw up the the IP part, the the, right. the core the core information in the models, um, the the core data structures that keep everything running. How has it been for you uh, finding Haskell developers and or creating them by, by hiring other developers and training them in Haskell? Has that been a difficult process? Uh, do you have a long uh, lead time finding them? Or We have, uh, we have um, hired, I guess, 25 straight-up Haskell developers, um, Singapore, London, New York. Um, hmm. And they, it's not hard to get resumes in. It's hard to get people to to commit to the day-to-day, -day, um, you know, eight till eight till six work life in finance, that kind of thing is harder. Um, it's hard mm -hmm. to get people to move countries to go and work on teams. It's not hard to get Haskell developers in the door. There are a lot of good Haskell developers out there now. Um, so that hasn't been so much of a problem. We've also had, I think it's been remarkably easy to get existing programmers and people who are just literate in programming, not necessarily computer science background. Um, to get them programming Haskell it hasn't been hard at all. They think of it as, oh, it's a bit like MATLAB or it's a little bit like um, Bash scripting, shell scripting, or it's a bit like math from, from their finance degrees. They know how to – all they're doing is composing functions. So they're not writing networking code. They're not writing I.O. Um, the guy – I mean, they're doing a bit of maybe data processing where they're pulling something from a source, manipulating it, and writing back out. So the, the, the end users of our libraries and tools pick up Haskell as they go. Mm -hmm. um, they, get, they get caught out occasionally on, on wanting to write to a file in the middle of a loop that's actually a map. And then they're like, hang on, why can't I, why can't I log on my intermediate data? Um, and that, that you know that's actually a challenge to teach them to start to decompose control data transformations where the side effects should occur. Mm -hmm. But um, it's it's been remarkable. We have we have hundreds of people who write a little bit of Haskell. They do it in the form of Excel, where they they're calling some a, a bunch of nested functions in Excel, but they're actually calling Haskell functions, and it just works because Excel is already a a very primitive functional language. Um, and once they get once they start wanting to do more advanced stuff, particularly if they want parallelism. This is often where the, where the bridge happens. They'll decide, 
oh, Excel's too slow, and I really want to do this at scale of uh, a lot of data. Then they just switch to writing in Haskell, and they start using par, par maps, and amazingly, it runs faster. <laughs> um, so Just stick so a I few think, usings in there and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. We 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 use a um, we use a power map style where you you have a, a, a thread pool or it could be a process pool or mm-hmm. it could be a grid. Um, so we use this stuff on on a huge compute grid as well. And you're parameterizing your traversals with the parallelism strategy. Sure. So you're the same code. If I'm if I'm running in in London on a 24 core machine, I can say or just run it locally using threads because I've right. got enough RAM, I've got enough cores. Yeah, you get to decide at, at runtime how you implement that parallelism. Yeah, yeah, the the same code will run unchanged for a guy who's remote pushing to a huge compute grid. He just passes in a different strategy, a different parallelism strategy. Mm-hmm. So, so that's been very, very powerful, and that that ability to scale the same code to larger data sets typically forces people out of Excel, but it also keeps them using Haskell because they just, they just are gobsmacked that they can do this and yeah. they don't understand. It, it's just they can't imagine doing it in Java or, or .NET, for example. And for our listeners, Simon Marlowe's new uh, Parallel and Concurrent Haskell book is a great introduction to this, and it's currently freely available, I believe, which is, yeah, which is yeah. pretty amazing. Yeah, there's, it's, a, it's a huge area. It's definitely something you can spend 10 years studying. Mm-hmm. Many different techniques, explicit concurrency, <laughs> parallelism at high levels, low levels, and then how do you get performance from tight numerical stuff versus big blobby aggregated data. So, so getting back for a moment to, to the, the education of, of new Haskell developers, is there a structure in your organization for mentoring? Uh, do you do any explicit mentoring or, or does it just happen sort of... Ad hoc. It's ad hoc. We try and um, we get people up to speed. We, with, we have written a bunch of internal documents. We point people at books. Um, often we just give them something like Graham Hutton's. Um, here's, here's Haskell. Here's basic syntax and, and how you call stuff. Or we throw real uh, world Haskell occasionally at the more advanced guys or learn your Haskell. And we have internal documentation as well on how to get started doing the typical things you might want to do, which is query a database, get some data. Right, treating, treating Haskell more as a DSL for their, for their task. Yeah. And we want to show them how to get their thing solved quickly in one or two lines, right. and then they're sold. And so, so, oh, okay, wow, I wrote three lines and I did that whole thing. That's there's, amazing. There's, a, there's an emphasis there on pragmatic use of some subset of Haskell for the task versus learning Haskell as as a general purpose language, at least up front, it seems like. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of these guys may never define data types. They'll be using, they'll be using pipelines. They'll be using list comprehensions. They'll be calling, um, you know, vector matrix libraries. Right. They'll be calling out to numerical libraries. Right. They're, they're basically using Haskell as an elegant interface to map reduce style programming. Yeah. Yeah. Or like an R, like a statistical language. Right. Um, so if you're thinking of something that's like those but customized to a huge sort of international environment with mm-hmm. your own data sources, then, yeah, it's a, it's a glue language for the corporation in sure. a way. Sure. Right. Uh, so let's move on to uh, – I'm interested to hear about some of the work that uh, you did while you were with uh, Calois. I'm horrible at pronouncing that. Uh, Galois. I saw, yeah. Galois, yeah. I saw. Uh, I, I remember watching and waiting for stuff to come out of there because it was heavily theoretical, very interesting, and uh, and specifically seeing the. I think you said Halvian, the 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 uh, targeting the Zen hypervisor uh, is fascinating, especially for those who want to get rid of DevOps work and and like the idea of just deploying to the cloud right on the right on the virtual hardware. So what was that like? And, and maybe you can share some stories. Yeah. Yeah, Gal is really interesting because it's a, it's a mix of sort of theoreticians and practitioners. So we had um, category theorists and um, we had hardcore metal and FPGA hackers, a lot of compiler writers. So it was, um, that, was a, that was a really cool place to work. Now, how VM came out of wanting to do rapid uh, operating system prototyping. So you, if you think about an operating system, writing an operating system from scratch, it's built up of components. You've got network stacks, device drivers, graphics things, and then components shuffling memory around, and then processes on top. We wanted to prototype um, new embedded operating system architectures. And uh, 
how do you how do you do that? We were you'd like to just write these things as their own separate modules, kind of Erlang style, running as processes, having them talk over shared memory, um, and Zen provides the capabilities to do that, where you're running little operating systems virtualized on top of Zen, um, but you can't you don't want to run a full operating system for each one of these things. You want to run just a function in some cases, and um, GHC, if you think of GHC's runtime as a microkernel that lets you boot up very quickly, you know, think of how long does a Haskell program take to start? It's like two or three milliseconds and you're up and running. You've got a garbage collector, you've got multi-core processing, you've certainly got thread pools, you've got memory locks, um, and and then you also get to write Haskell. So as a as a uh, microkernel environment for running um, running code, it was it was amazing for getting quick prototypes up and there's been similar work uh, mirage for camel is a similar effort and i think there's also one for erlang where you take these lightweight runtimes they provide most of the services you need to be able to write something useful and then that's your full um that's your full deployment stack you've got zen plus the operating system which is the language runtime and then just the service that you want to write so maybe it pulls data from somewhere does something to it and sends it somewhere else and that's your entire operating system stack. There's no, there's none of the everything else that you need. So you basically boiled away the dead code that is the rest of the operating system. And yeah, you're not, you're not running all of those user space things that are sucking away resources. Yeah, yeah. You've just you've got this thing that boots in milliseconds. It's maybe using one or two meg of memory, and but you're you're able to write as if you're writing a full Haskell environment. Right. You're not writing embedded code. Right. In the time we have left, I was really curious to know, you've spent a lot of time on the edges, sort of the pioneering work uh, with Haskell. And where are the challenges right now? What do you see as the new developments that are going to really push uh, more adoption at a large scale of Haskell? Yeah, I guess I've been looking at what are the barriers to adoption? And that's been my focus for maybe 10 years now. And that's about finding places where Haskell's not working and making it work there, which meant originally it meant porting Haskell compilers to lots of things. Um, I used to, back in the day, I had a, a 68K, a Spark, a MIPS, an Alpha, uh, all running um, GHC. So that was the first step, is to get it portable. Um, but obviously the big platform now that people care about targeting is ARM. And so with GHC, GHC on ARM is pretty well established at this point. Um, GHC on iPhone, for example, is is now yeah. That, there was just an announcement. It's just been announced, yeah. right? So that's the first level. Make sure Haskell runs everywhere because um, it has to compete against something like a JVM, which people are happy to run on lots of different environments, um, or else they've already done the work of porting the runtime to different systems. So you you deal with that. Then the next step is integrating with all the different libraries. So it has to run on Windows, Linux. Um, on a Mac, it has to run on different embedded operating systems. It has to be able to talk all the the native libraries and for for storing data, network services. So we've seen that's really where the hackage growth was initially, was um, we had the compiler, now we needed the libraries. So 2007, I guess, we started Hackage. So it was the January, it was the first hackathon in Oxford. We had 18 people in a room and we got Hackage done at the end and uploaded about 100 libraries that were ready to go. Things like the binary library was one of the first ones because, hey, we needed to write stuff to binary um, efficiently. Nice. Um, and so that was that, that step. And then people have, since then, we've got JSON libraries and we've got many, many, many database, database libraries, many serialization libraries, so we can talk to other systems. So you want, to, you want Haskell to play well with other systems. The friendlier it is, the easier it is to quickly get it talking to something, the more people, the easier it is to use. So maybe this yeah. is a good time to talk about the uh, Haskell platform, which is sort of that batteries-included approach to getting Haskell running in a useful way as quickly as possible, right? Yeah, yeah. By 2008, it was clear that Hackage was going to work. Um, we had, I think, about 1,000 libraries by September 2008, so within sort of the first year. Um, and I just checked today. We're on. We're, we're at about five thousand six hundred libraries now, closing in for about six thousand libraries on Hackage by the end of the year. So it's been, been about a thousand new packages a year. So there's enough code, and most things that you want to do, there is already a library for. So that problem is pretty much solved. Then the problem becomes a curation problem. How do you 
get the right libraries to the right people. Because now people don't want to have to think about which JSON library to use. There should just be one that they use, which text library, which any of the core services, they should just know. And we faced in 2008, already there was fragmentation. So different operating systems would get behind. If, if, Ubuntu, if Ubuntu was two years behind the state of the art, that would rule out some users because they can't deploy on their internal company's funky old Red Hat or CentOS or something. And so the step that we took was to standardize a core. And Python had done this already very well with the batteries included philosophy. You mm -hmm. should make sure your core distribution is pretty much standardized for all the useful things you need to do. And that's, that's essentially what the platform was. Um, initially, it was just standardizing base and FP tools as it used to be. And uh, so that meant a whole bunch of containers, libraries, um, IO stuff, parallelism. But we always wanted to pull in the, you know, the real meat, which was the database libraries, the graphics libraries, um, and the network services, the, the stuff that lets us play well with others. Um, that, and that was harder. So it took, it's really taken until I, I had always thought that we needed more of a benevolent dictator to get packages in. We went with a, a consensus, a library emailing list consensus approach, which was very slow and very difficult um, because consensus is so hard to achieve right. in, in sort of distributed <laughs> groups of people. It's much easier at the hackathons. We could get four or five people to agree on something that was pretty good, get it written, get it done, and ship it. Um, so now, though, um, as Mark Lenson has taken over the platform delivery and the process has changed, we've got a libraries committee. Uh, the process seems to be a lot better now. We're getting mm -hmm. more libraries faster. Better libraries are getting into the system quicker than they used to. Um, but, yeah, the platform, I think the platform still remains. We still have to grow it a bit more as a good base. But the concept works and people don't think now that what, should I, what Haskell version should I support on my system? Um, the old questions of should I have hugs or should I have GHC are gone. It's I install the Haskell platform and I will take what the Haskell guys say is the base. So I have some more personal questions for you, Don. I, I took a look in, at uh, your Stack Overflow activity because I know that every time I come across a Haskell question, there's a good chance you've answered it as well. Uh, and the uh, out of curiosity, I browsed through your edits on the Haskell Wiki and counted something like 5,000 edits over the last however many years, going from, I think, 2006 or so. So obviously, this is a passion of yours. Where do you, how do you find the time and energy to keep, uh, to keep at it? Or, or, or what's your, what's your, uh, motivation for all these contributions that aren't directly, you know, professionally related. Yeah, there's just lots of stuff to learn. Uh, I'm still learning stuff about Haskell constantly. Every every day you go and read something new on Haskell Reddit and it's, oh, okay, the people are pushing this stuff forward. So it's it, it remains very interesting. Um, I, Stack Overflow is great because you're waiting for your compiler to finish compiling something. You can quickly answer someone's question. <laughs> Because you don't need to think about while you're waiting for the time checker. And, and when you say quickly, we're talking about you know that multiple thousand page articles that include, or 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 he's using a lot of template Haskell, journeying <laughs> a lot of solutions. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's the I, the the stack overflow is fun because it helps you. It's always been very helpful to get a sense of where the the cold face is in the community, where are the new guys running into problems? Mm -hmm. um, well, they don't understand IO string versus string. That's <laughs> that's one that I have, I know, that's people are gonna run into that. Yeah. But it also shows you weaknesses in libraries, it shows you stuff that was difficult. Um, and so it's useful to keep your, so sort of keep a finger on the pulse. If, it, if part of this bigger, broader project of making Haskell succeed, um, you want to understand where users are having trouble. And so Stack Overflow is great for that. Uh, the wiki, yeah, the wiki, I guess we started in about 2006 was the switch to wiki, uh, Wikimedia. Um, and so we had to backport the old wiki. So there was a big import of stuff. And then uh, uh, the Haskell IRC channel, we spent a lot of time writing articles. And then there's now wiki books and a huge amount of online material. Because before that, we had this problem that all the info was locked up in PDFs or in PostScript in dvi.gz files <laughs> oh and you know, you know the the knowledge we had we had haskells from 1990 
But until about 2001, all the information was from conferences. So if you wanted to learn about some cool library, you had to find the, the online version. You had to email the author to get a postscript file. And so it was very important to start documenting the lore, the folklore of the, of the community. And the wiki, I mean, a wiki is perfect for that. And we've ended up with these, you know, massive sprawling wikis with everything possibly documented, huge hackage ecosystem um, where the open source community, the bizarre approach kind of just overwhelmed the, the small cathedrals of, of researchers putting out papers. Um, the amount, you know, the amount of content that's now just generated in an open source way is enormous in the Haskell community. And it's really a reason why it has been successful over the last 10 years, I think. Um, I, I don't know if I'll, if we'll have time to go into the other, uh, questions I had for you. I want to give you a chance to, uh, promote basically anything that you've been working on lately or that you've seen that that's particularly interesting that we haven't talked about yet. I think the thing that I'm, I'm interested at the moment is um, annotating, instrumenting the runtime system. So you're deploying a Haskell service somewhere. You want to be able to log in to that server and see how is the garbage collector going or how is the thread utilization. Um, and then, so, so there's been some work on that, on adding D-trace probes, adding, you know, putting a web server in the runtime so I can connect to it remotely. And um, being able to add custom hooks so I can log various messages. So I'm interested in that. Um, on the other side, I'm interested in, I think it's still somewhat unsolved, is uh, automated tools for understanding performance. So using, we have this call language and we have the STG machine, which is a, you know, it's, we have a well-documented formal runtime system model. But we don't have tools that utilize this formal model. We're not, we haven't mechanized um, the cost models, so we haven't mechanized the semantics and turned them into useful tools. And that was always a promise of having a language that was well-defined, having a formally defined language, even though it's, you know, it's not ML, we don't, have a, we don't have a formal spec for Haskell. We have a formal spec for lots of pieces of Haskell. And you know, the runtime system, the STG machine has been formalized in several theorem improvements at this point. The core and system F languages have been formalized many times. What we're missing is tools that use that information to say things like, well, here's a function. What is it likely to cost me to run? Um, how many allocations is this thing going to make? Does this thing allocate or not allocate? Um, those kinds of questions. That, so being able to statically analyze Haskell code and find out stuff about it. Uh, the most promising aspect in this is probably the liquid Haskell work, I think. So integrating SMT solvers so that I can write all the properties I want as long as I've got some theory library hooked into the solver that, that it understands. So if I can get a cost model, if I can get um, other models about allocation, for example, can I, can I get the compiler to assert for me what's going to happen? You know, would this give us potentially the ability to make some guarantees about allocations, for instance, that might make Haskell more suitable as a hard real-time language? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you need that for um, the, for example, the Copilot DSL that Gawa came up with, Lee, Lee Pike's project, was about generating C that had hard real-time guarantees, and they put these things on on little little planes. Um, but you have to, you're using Haskell as the language to specify the algorithm, but then generating C code where you do have a tight cost model. In, in Haskell, we were so sensitive early on not having a cost model and laziness was so hard to reason about that we've kind of gone over the top with profiling tools. We have so many profiling tools now. You can see, look inside the runtime every different way. There's like nine different ways to profile a program. Mm -hmm. You can often profile just by looking at the core, but we still we still don't have a way to say what's the mean execution time of this this thing. So I think we may end up. I mean, there's a good there's a good a lot of people who know Ada in the formal methods world who also know Haskell, and so and we have SMT people who right. are the guys who will write tools um, for us to do this. And so I would I wouldn't be surprised if we see more Haskell on software real time. Right. Um, it may not be GHC is the thing because GHC is such a huge runtime. We've seen people taking JHC, which generates ANSI C code, mm -hmm. and putting that onto little chips. That's been kind of a hot topic of late. The core tools are there. We have types. We have models, formal models of our runtime system, of our language, and we have a community that knows how to build these kinds of tools. Right. So I think 
the number of things that have appeared in the last 10 years is just phenomenal. Um, it seems next- like semantically Haskell would be an ideal language for this sort of thing because you should be able to get so many guarantees about its behavior at runtime. Yeah, that's right. And people are probably screaming at the at the monitor now, saying, well, "What about laziness?" Well, <laughs> you've got to think about the types. It goes Haskell's a lazy and strict language. It has strict types, lazy types, strict application, lazy application. So you you're writing in the subsets that make sense for the problem you're working in. If you're doing nested data parallelism, and you're working on unboxed arrays, you're working in a strict subset of language which has the cost model that you want, and you exploit that cost model to write clever parallel code. With a with a nice um, static workload distribution. If you're working on embedded stuff, you need very fine control over resources. And right. whether it's strict allocation or lazy, strict um, evaluation or lazy evaluation, you need you need some you need the guarantees and you need the accurate cost models. Lazy is harder to reason about, and so that puts the extra burden. Um, you're not going to be writing lazy code on the on the tiny chips soon, I think. Aside from uh, getting the book Real World Haskell, where can people go to find more of what you've written and maybe any talks or uh, anything else that you've done regarding Haskell if they want to if they want to read more, hear more of you? Yeah, I think I might, the main stuff that I'm working on these days is Stack Overflow. So. <laughs> yeah, I, would, I would like someone to edit an, an anthology of your Stack Overflow answers. There's a few. There's a few of the bigger ones. Um, and uh, I did, but I have on on donspot.wordpress.com I have I have my blog which has most of the things written from sort of 2004 until about 2011, and there's a lot of a lot of early stuff there, sort of prototypes of things that ended up in real world Haskell and stuff that I've been doing since. So particularly a lot of the work on fusion, stream fusion, um, and understanding how optimizations work. Uh, that's that's probably the the home for that. Um, but yeah, I'm also active on Google Plus, and if anyone writes a performance question on Stack Overflow, I'm probably going to jump in with an answer. And <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, thanks for joining us, Don. This has been very interesting for me, and I think anyone who's been interested in hearing about where Haskell is going to be going in the future and in the large. Cool. Thanks, guys. Well, I think that's a wrap. Thanks, Don. You've been listening to The Haskell Cast, episode number two, recorded on September 8th, 2013, with special guest Don Stewart. For links and comments on this episode, go to www.haskellcast.com. <laughs>